Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're here in Boston, back in Boston, with uh, two friends of mine, uh, one from a long time, one kind of newer. Uh, newer, Michael Skelfo, chef restaurateur at Alden and Harlow, one of the most popular restaurants in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and also of Waypoint, relatively newer uh, than Alden and Harlow, but both uh, receiving incredible recognition. Michael, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Billy. It's a pleasure. And Jim and Sarah, um, longtime Share Our Strength supporter, also somebody who has his own nonprofit now, having transitioned from building a construction company called Shamit Construction to uh, now a nonprofit called Build Health International, which we're going to talk about here. Um, we've got, it, it, it probably seems uh, for three guys who are like just connecting here that we have nothing in common. But uh, one thing I know that you two don't is that uh, we all married up. We have three, <laughs> three yes. amazing wives who are <laughs> warmer and more charming and, and, you know, more talented than us. I've met Ellen Scalfo several times and she's like a force of nature, really, really incredible. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Karen Keating and Sarah, who's been Jim's partner in so much of his work. Um, also, Jim, you started out building, including building restaurants, a lot of them. I, is it true that you know, we were just talking, uh, Michael and I, about Gordon Hammersley, who dined recently at, was it was it at Waypoint? Yeah, he had come into Waypoint with his daughter to have dinner. And first time you'd met him? First time uh, having, really meeting him and having a, you know, an extended conversation with him. It was, uh, it was an honor to have him in, for sure. And he'd been yeah. on this podcast. And is it, uh, do I remember right, Jim, that you built uh, Hammersley's Bistro? Uh, two, two restaurants. His first one, which was very small, um, which we renovated a little restaurant uh, down the street from where he ended up uh, when he, had, he and Fiona were just starting, which I think the budget was... Fifty-five thousand dollars in. Hey, that sounds good to me. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be the way to start. <laughs> uh, they quickly, in a few years, realized they needed a bigger place, and right. we we worked on that. And they were um, they were great, and they've been great friends for many years. And, so. and you've ended up building a lot of restaurants in this town and in other towns. I always tell some abbreviated, probably. Uh, apocryphal story of you dropping out of a couple colleges and ending up in construction. But uh, yes. why don't you tell us the real story? Well, I uh, I had briefly attended Brown University and was uh, focused on sports, not academics. Hockey in particular? Yes. And um, then was out of school for a year and a half playing hockey and then uh, went to Amherst College where I had also been accepted previously and uh, managed to last a year and a half there before being asked to leave and came back to Boston and and fell into a construction job uh, building. F felt like how? Well, I needed work and um, I had just met Karen and uh, I went around with tools looking f for a job and uh, I really had no skills and found uh, someone in Somerville who uh, did fire restoration, basically chased fire trucks, literally and started talked my way into a job as a foreman with him which i had no business being and so you're a foreman on a construction site yes um and he did his entire business in cash and every friday we'd come in with receipts and he'd give us another two thousand dollars and we went from there and that was my start so and that worked for karen obviously you've been married a long time what yep, more than 30 years or yes yes and um yep she certainly uh didn't marry me for money um because those were very hard times for us. But uh, 
you know, one thing led to another, and my first restaurant was actually the the SNS restaurant in Inman Square in Cambridge, mm-hmm. when the Mitchell family decided to renovate that in the late '80s. And and how did all this turn into Shawmut Construction, which is a massive company? Yeah, it it took a long time and many bumps in the road, but we uh, I I saw I got the job at at the SNS not because we were particularly qualified, but no one else wanted to do it. And at that time, there was no restaurant scene in Boston. There was Les Balliers and um, Maison Robert, and I think that was, and I think Jasper White was just getting going, and um, uh, I had great timing. And I realized that there was this underserved niche, and uh, we decided to specialize in restaurants and had uh, quite a run, and that really built the company in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. And and it morphed into restaurants, universities, um, almost yeah. every everything you could think of. Yes, uh, big, a big uh, sort of uh, retail, flagship specialty retail, the big Apple stores. That's based in New York now. But uh, I s- sold the company to the employees in 2006, and um, they've done a great job with it. Um, they've continued to build it. And uh, um, uh, I was on the board for a long time, but as I got involved in international work, I stepped away from that. Got it. And Michael, it sounds like your talents might have been discovered earlier than Jim's were because <laughs> you were winning awards at the young age of 25 as a chef and getting incredible reviews. Uh, how did you, you went to culinary school. Where did, it, where did the spark come from for you? to actually become a chef? You know, the true story is, is that I didn't even really want to be a chef. Um, Food was always a passion because I grew up in a very food forward family. Um, Mom was a great cook, grandmother's aunts, very typical of what you hear in a lot of chef stories, you know. Any type of ethnic uh, background? We're Italian, Italian Italian and Sicilian on both sides, third generation for me. That explains the food passion. So there was just constantly pots rolling in the kitchen and meatballs being made for no reason at all <laughs> and just you know constant you know lunch was a huge production you know and and I wanted to be a writer I wanted to I wanted to write um I always had a passion for reading and writing and I wanted to be a journalist I wanted to you know write about sports and and opinion and and pop culture and stuff like that so I went to school for that for a couple of years and then sat my parents down in uh, in San Francisco. We were having a dinner at a great restaurant called Coletto's. Pat Coletto is kind of a legendary mm-hmm. restaurant tour. And uh, you know, um, you know, I explained to them that I, I was lost. You know, like like a lot of kids are in their you know twenty, twenty one, twenty two, trying to figure things out. And uh, you know, mom always has the answer. She looked across the table and was like, "Well, why why don't you cook? You 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 love to cook. You've always loved cooking. You know, you I grew up watching t- cooking shows and reading her cookbooks and stuff like that. So." You know, I I said, yeah, you're right. Why don't I? And and as uh, as we're having this conversation, the general manager walks by, kind of interjects into the conference uh, conversation, and puts his business card on the table and says, you know, when you figure it out, let us know. Um, and I, I did. You, I, you really I, hadn't thought about it before then. No, really wow. hadn't. Not until that moment. Um, and uh, your, your mom's still alive. I had been. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, thank, she thank must you. Be yeah, very, yeah. She must be very proud of what you've done. She is. Yeah, yeah. Both my parents are. My parents are very. Uh, you know, young. I'm. Uh, I just turned 44 this past week, and my parents are 65. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been together since they were 13. They had me when they were 19. Wow, they've got you beat, Jim and Sarah. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they says they set a very high standard for us kids. So, Michael, yeah. any missteps along the way? 
honestly, to be perfectly candid, I got fired from my first three cooking jobs here just because, you know, my ego was too big for my skill level. I was very uh, hard headed and wanted to do it my way. I thought I knew better than everybody else. Um, I was my father's son in a lot of ways in that way, you know, very (laughs) stubborn guy also, but also a very proud guy, Um, family pride and, and built, you know, on some real core basics, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my butt hit the ground a couple of times before I, I finally figured it out, you know, but that, you know, again, that just kind of built up the layers and built up the strength and the determination to, to just keep going. I never gave up. I just kept going, going, going until it finally paid off. Something told me you guys had more in common than the two, two amazing <laughs> yeah, women that you, you married and, and we're starting to find yeah, that out. Yeah. Um, stubbornness, resilience. Yes. Well, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. they're pretty important qualities, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things we talk about a lot, and I think particularly, um, I know at Share Our Strength, we have a staff of 200. I've described them mostly as millennials. And that, you know, they, they kind of start out in the careers thinking a career goes in a straight line. And of course, we know that there's zigs and zags, and those are actually what make your career better. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is food and its connection to so many other things that we care about, because mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I know each of you is you've been involved with Share Our Strength and which are, with our effort to make sure that people uh, can enjoy the blessings of food, even if they can't afford it. You've both been very generous that way. Jim, you you as a longtime supporter. Um, When there was a period when I knew you when you were still at Shamit or just as you were leaving, where you were kind of searching around for what you were going to do philanthropically, you clearly had strong philanthropic impulses. You and your family had been very generous. Uh, And then the earthquake happened in Haiti. And that seemed to have decided it for you. I don't want to put words in your mouth and I could be wrong, but that was the impression I got looking from the outside. Tell us about that period, why you decided to leave Shamit, how you got into the philanthropy. That you-, um, you know, I, I had started uh, Shamit at a very early age in my early, early 20s and uh, really uh, worked uh, six to seven days a week relentlessly for many, many years. So I was, I, I, in hindsight, I might've taken a sabbatical, but always given to sort of extremes, I decided that I needed to step back from the company in the early 2000s and did that and still stayed involved and still owned the company. But in, in 2006, sold it to the employees, I reached a point where it was growing and I either had to be really all in or let, uh, um, let the management really develop um, on their own and, and take the company forward. And I decided uh, uh, to sell it to the employees through an, uh, an ESOP, which was a, which still is a great... Which is an employee stock ownership plan that yep. allows an employer to, to do that. Yes. Yep. And um, it's one of the few things in life that uh, uh, in the United States that enjoys bipartisan support from, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from uh left-wing uh, Democrats and, and right-wing Republicans uh, for different reasons. But uh, uh, that worked out well for everybody. Uh, we were able to uh, take, um, for the first time, a big chunk of money out. And Karen and I had always had had, had a small foundation up to that point, And it became a much larger foundation at that juncture. And I realized quickly that... Uh, grant making that philanthropy and giving away money wasn't enough for me. I needed um, a different set of challenges. And uh, I had been to Haiti in late 2008 with Dr. Paul Farmer, 
uh, the one of the founders of Partners in Health, and had traveled a lot, but was completely taken aback by the level of of poverty, by the level of challenges that um, and the injustice in the country, um, just deep, deep. Uh, in rooted injustice that had been there for hundreds of years. And, and so close to our shores. 600 miles you know, from Miami so Beach. So close. And uh, I was just uh, totally, o- at first, overwhelmed by it and then de- uh, determined to do something in, about it. And Karen and I had ar- were already focused more internationally at that point. Um, and uh, so I, I tried to plug in with PIH. It was challenging. Um, it was a sm- Partners in Health. Partners in Health, yeah. It's a much smaller organization than it is today. And uh, then out of the blue in the summer of 2009, a young doctor, Dr. David Walton, who um, was uh, 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 Paul Farmer's student at Harvard Medical School and worked at the Brigham and had worked in Haiti at that point for 10 years, um, uh, called me up and I started building a small community hospital with him. So you're doing that before the earthquake? Yes, Okay. I, and didn't we real, were, I didn't realize that. Yeah. We were designing it. It was going to be a hundred bed community hospital. It seemed very manageable. Um, something I could go down once a month and sort of work with him on. And, uh, we, uh, you know, in, in early January, um, the day of the earthquake, we were actually, uh, at Shawmut using an office. Um, we talked to a colleague who's, who was going to do solar at the hospital who unfortunately died an hour later at the Hotel Montana. Mm. And um, we, I, uh, I remember exactly you know, hearing with him on the radio, driving him back to his, his apartment uh, about the earthquake. And the next day he went to Haiti. Um, and uh, two days later, I went um, with uh, 30 doctors and nurses and a couple tons of medical equipment. And um, that uh, changed my life uh, forever in a very positive way. You not only went, but you stayed for, yep. it felt, uh, your friends like for two or three or four years. I mean, you were there almost four or five days a week for several years. Yeah. For three years. Yeah. Um, uh, when I, I went down to Haiti with, um, I was uh, on the board of the Timberland boot and clothing company. They had a factory uh, in the Dominican Republic next door, which shares the Island. And so we took a small plane down there and I think we were there maybe six or seven days after the earthquake, um, and I, I, you may know part of the story, but not all of it. Uh, and so it, it's pretty. There's a lot of devastation, of course, and it's pretty sobering. Um, and we're, you know, more hovering over it rather than immersed in it as you were. Um, and we're looking for some projects that Share Our Strength would be able to fund, and the Timberland would be able to fund. And our, on our last stop, we stopped at a hospital that you were. I think repairing, I think their electricity was out and it had been hit pretty bad. The general hospital in Port-au-Prince, which had been an 800 bed hospital. And it was, I mean, it was literally running with blood on the floors. And I mean, it was just, uh, I think when I saw Jimmy probably hadn't slept for five or six, four or five, six days, uh, you looked pretty bad. And, um, (laughs) and, and it was incredibly heroic work. And when, as we were leaving, you kind of ran over to us and you said, would you do me one favor? Uh, do you rem- I don't know if you remember this, but no. you said, would, would you do me a favor? And I was like, anything. I would have done like literally anything you asked. I could tell that you were just, you know, you were the difference between life and death for a lot of people there. And you said, um, you're headed back to Boston tomorrow. Um, my wife, Karen, is convening a meeting of the Haitian 
uh, expat community because there's a very large Haitian community here in here in Boston. They're going to be meeting at this church, and when you go, would you go and speak to them and tell them what you saw here and and what's needed? And I was like, yes, of course, you know, in in a heartbeat. So I went to the church the next day. It was packed to the gills, and I'm standing in the back, and the speaker uh, right in front of me before I'm going to be introduced. Uh, is this very impressive but very fiery woman uh, who's making the point that the last thing that we need are non-Haitians coming here to tell us what's needed in Haiti. And I'm getting ready to take the podium as the non-Haitian <laughs> who's supposed to come, you know, and, and say what's needed. Anyhow, I, I somehow pulled it off, but it was a I'm pretty, sure you did. It, it was, it was a pretty dicey moment. But um, you've also, I guess, with Karen created within the Boston Foundation, and their president, Paul Grogan, has been on this podcast, uh, you created a Haiti fund so that yes. uh, people in this community could be involved as well. Yeah, Karen gets all the credit for that. Um, and it's actually turned into uh, the Haiti Institute, which is uh, really working with grassroots organizations, Haitian organizations, uh, mostly in the in the in the countryside, on on development projects around education and and sanitation and a whole, and, and agriculture and a whole slew of things. Uh, so it's it's been a great thing for the Haitian community uh, in Boston, which is very large and um, uh, a very important part of the city. I want to talk a little bit about hunger as it, as it exists in Haiti and as it exists here. Michael and I had an opportunity recently to visit a shelter in, um, in Cambridge called the Y to Y shelter. Um, and you get a sense of just how profound the need is. But, but just before I do that, I want to stay in Haiti for one more moment. Why is it, uh, I've been there not nearly as much as you have, but I've been there probably uh, four or five times over the last number of years. Why does it seem so, why is it so desperate? Why does it seem so unfixable? Should we be hopeful or cynical or both? I, um, I always come away with mixed emotions. I just don't know how yeah. to change things there. Uh, I get asked this question all the time and there's no sort of easy pat answer. Uh, my answer, which I really believe, is that you, if you're going to work in Haiti, uh, you have to have a 20 or 50 year horizon. You can't look for immediate short-term uh, turnaround or gains. Um, it's very convenient to blame the Haitian government um, and the Haitian government certainly has its shortcomings, but it's also a government with no revenues. With um, It's a country where- There's no tax base though, right? No no, tax nobody ba pays taxes except maybe 200 families and they found a way to exempt themselves, right? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> and the economy's very, there's a very informal economy. Um, unemployment's estimated at about 70%. Um, uh, of those 30% who are supposed to be employed, many are working- as uh, street vendors or in a very informal economy. Um, and it's, it's incredibly challenging, but it's not, it's not just because um, of the recent political history. Uh, the, the roots of the problems in Haiti trace back to the Napoleonic era and France's um, really horrendous exploitation of the island and uh of of the slaves that it um, that it brought to the island, and um, the French uh, promoted a particularly brutal and uh, and a very classist uh, 
system on the plantations that you still see playing out in Haiti today. Um, you know, in the United States, um, you don't see class divisions as clearly as certainly did when I was young uh, and I'm 60 um, in the United States. They're still here, uh, but you don't see them as uh, there's much more sort of mobility on the surface. In Haiti, they're very, very clear. And it's um, it plays out every day. And that's another piece of the dysfunction and why it's so challenging. And the United States and other countries have not uh, been kind to Haiti, um, uh, despite the aid. Not been kind in what, in what way? In terms of foreign policy, in terms of uh, in, uh, involvement in, in internal Haitian politics, the United States Marines occupying the island for an extended period of time in the 30s, um, uh, the... Um, uh, the trade policies uh, president clinton who who's been very involved in haiti has has publicly apologized in haiti for for uh pushing haiti to drop uh, uh the rice the rice tariff right. Im imports on rice tariff which destroyed the haitian rice economy which is the staple there so ha haiti 20 years ago l largely fed itself today it's 70 to 80 percent imported food including Arkansas rice, which you see everywhere. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, Michael, I love about your commitment to share our strength is you not only participate in helping us raise money, but as I mentioned, you and your wife have actually been involved in what I call bearing witness. You came to the y to y shelter. This is a shelter in Cambridge for young homeless. It's actually run by young people, Harvard students, for young homeless kids, and you realize they've got a great kitchen there. They really do. Um, Ellen's and, been and, cooking there since we've- And Ellen's been cooking, she's yeah, been volunteering she's, there? She's been volunteering and cooking there. Incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, it was around the corner from me and I didn't know it, you know, and, it, and listening to you speak is just, you know, really puts things puts things in perspective for me. You know, I, I you know, you feel like you're doing something, anything, and, I, you know, uh, what we're doing, I think, is really small, but also, I guess, really powerful on the level that we can do it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, when Ellen and I sat down, you know, a year ago and, and said, you know, I, I told her, I said, you know, I really want to change the way we do things. And I, and I want it was something I said, I, I would like for us to do this together as a team and, and kind of make the next chapter about this for us and uh, devote more time. And, and really, it came down to you know, who we want it because you get as a chef in a restaurant or you get asked to do so many things daily, you know, multiple. And, uh, you know, we, we, we decided to, you know, focus our, 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 uh, focus on share our strength. Jim, how did you, um, and Karen make your decisions? You talked about a small mm -hmm. foundation that became a much larger foundation, but at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're just like there would be on the Gates foundation. There's a budget <laughs> and there's a finite amount and you've got, Unfortunately, to, you, yes. you've got to divide it up. How do you, yeah. how do you decide? Well, um, you know, I was thinking as we were talking that one of the reasons, you know, we don't support a lot locally or domestically anymore. Uh, our focus is international and uh, not just in Haiti, but Latin America as well. And one of the reasons we have remained uh, supporters of Share Our Strength is that this is, you know, childhood hunger is solvable. It's not Haiti. Um uh, we have the resources, as you say so often, to f to feed our children, and it's it's just to me it's morally wrong 
that we don't, um, uh, you know, we as a society don't focus on this. Uh, I, I was having a discussion with my um, UPS uh, delivery man Monday, um, who was talking to me about what we were doing. And he said, well, why don't you work in here? There, you know, there's plenty of hunger in America. There's plenty of problems in America. There, you need hospitals here. Um, and I said, you do. And there's great social problems in the United States and they're growing. And I'm very concerned about it. Um, we just uh, are, are, have chosen to work in places where no one else uh, wants to work. Well, when you talk about issues like this, you talked about how some of uh, our country's policies were harmful to Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, have echoing in my mind, Michael, you saying just moments ago that you became socially active. Yeah. Um, do, is there a point at which you think you uh, have to also become politically active? How can a chef do that? Yeah. You've got a restaurant. You probably yeah. can't stand up on a soapbox and, and talk politics yeah. to people. But I would how, like to. How you do you know, think about managing that tension? Um, you know, I don't know. And, and that's kind of where I want to go with it. You know, I, I want, I, you know, to do more advocacy and, and get more political with it. I just did a retreat um, with the Beard Foundation over the weekend. I know how closely you guys yep. work with them, um, you know, to on how to be a better advocate for this stuff and maybe go down to the hill and, and mm. work on some of these issues and and do the best you can to kind of get in front of these people and make your voice heard. But, you know, as you know, that's uh, a, a very daunting thing and, and doesn't always get the best results. And we're kind of putting chefs out there on the front lines to kind of help you know get this this messaging in front of the, the right people you know um that's where i want to head with it you know but my constant struggle has been you know how do you get there how do you do it you know and and all i can think of is to just keep kind of you know ringing the bell and, and saying what's next you know my you know i i end every email to emily uh emily ryan with tell me what else you need what's yeah, next you know what's what, what's the next you know, every email ends with, let me know what the next step is. Let me know what you need next. And I, I just have to keep doing that until, you know, something happens, you know, and we, and we just keep going. It's all I can do. Yeah. This is Emily Ryan of the Sheriff's Training yeah. staff that you're referring to. Um, the James Beard uh, training, is that what they call their boot camp yes. for yes, sir, chefs yeah. to yeah. get them more involved in policy? What's that look like? It was great. I went down for a couple of days. I was down in Glenwood in upstate New York on the Hudson Valley. And uh, we had a, we had a great couple of days out there and, and we went through and did, uh, you know, Catherine Miller um, yeah. uh, worked with us for a couple of days just on on messaging and and what it would look like uh, for, you know, they're, they're working on uh, one of their passions right now and projects they're working on very strongly is getting labeling, universal labeling down uh, for nutritional and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, so they were working with us on messaging for that and then, you know, kind of ended it with, well, what's important to you, Michael? What's important to you, Jim? You know, where do you want to go with this? Where do you want to go? And then what they want to do is they want to be that kind of connecting, you know, uh, entity that gets me connected to share our strength or gets someone connected to animal welfare or whatever's the important topic to them. So they're doing real good work down there. And I think it was a very educational experience, but it still left me in that situation of, Gosh, I've I've got a, a long way to go, and I and I need to bridge these gaps because I do want to get more active with it, you know. And and uh, toting a cooler only gets you so far. Um, we're talking here on Add Passion and Stir about some pretty sobering issues, but one of the other things that I think unites us is we all love food. Yes. Um, and since we've got a guy who built restaurants and a guy who runs them, I'd also want to just hear about your favorite food experience. Um, you you just came back from. New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah, New oh. Orleans. First visit. Um, had a great weekend. Down How did it there. rank? 
you know, high, yes. <laughs> rank very high. It was, uh, it was, uh, I had high expectations going in and all were met, you know, and it was really important to me to see, um, some of the more, I always enjoy the more humble offerings in, in a city, like, um, you know, the best sandwich, the best soup, the best, you know, locals only. I always want to know where the locals go and I'm always kind of seeking out that place. Um, but we did get to some big restaurants. We got to Donald Link's places, Cachon and, and Pesh, and we got to uh, Shia, all great meals, you know, but. Did you have a po' boy while you were there? I did. We went to Parkway Tavern. Parkway Tavern. Parkway Tavern had a po' boy and that was great. Um, but what was really amazing about the city too, was just the culture of it. You know, we went to, a. Uh, a place called B Studio uh, one day, which is amazing, 35,000 square foot art installation all done um, by one artist. And, uh, you know, it's in the it's in the Bywater neighborhood. It's a uh, it's a humble area and uh, it's it was super, super powerful. I couldn't even describe it to you, um, the messaging and and, uh, you know, it, it, it's sobering in a city where there's not a lot of sober. It was a nice, you know, sober interlude. And uh, I think that um it was a good reminder that we have lots to do in lots of areas, you know, for me. Jim, I was going to ask you about your favorite dining experience other than your 60th birthday party, which I was at <laughs> and, and and saw more Lebanese food than I've ever seen in my life, yes. which is your ancestry, as I understand half it. Half of it, yeah. A half of it. Um, favorite dining experience here in Boston or anywhere? Oh, so many. And, um, you know, I have, I've had so many great friends and clients in the, in the business for so many years, but... Uh, one experience that always stands out for me is um, early on uh, I went to Providence uh, to Al Forno, uh, yes. uh, which I'm, sh- I'm yeah. sure is still there. Or I don't think it's. I think it's yeah, closed, closed now. Closed but yeah, but was the grilled pizza at Al Forno, the legendary. Uh, yeah, it was you know way ahead of its time. Yeah. It's the first time I had sort of um, Italian food outside of the. Uh, sure. commercial north end yeah and uh but but you know unusual creative italian uh mediterranean cooking and it was just an amazing space and um, amazing people uh and became uh great friends uh uh with the owners and uh uh that was uh sort of you know i was in my early 20s and uh it was just a, an incredible experience but there's been so many and uh, you know, sadly, I don't, um, I don't get out a lot now. I, I work more than I did in my twenties and thirties, but, uh, uh, you know, when I do, when I do, uh, I'm happy to go anywhere as long as my family's with me. So, and uh, Mike, but Mike, the shore house in, uh, is al- always one of our favorites. The shore cottage in Maine. Yes. Yeah. With me on the grill. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, Michael and I were just talking about how Boston has really become a city that's has raised yeah. its culinary game yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in, in quite a big way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, t- tell me, as we wrap up here, what's next for each of you? I think, Michael, you've probably just touched on it. You've got an expansion coming with Longfellows. You've just recently opened Waypoint. Yeah. How many how many restaurants can a, a chef have <laughs> before it's, it's more work than fun? Well, I'm hoping to find out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those, are, those are good problems. I, you know, I had a... a you know, we've, this will be three in, in just under four years, you know, so it's, it's been a, a really a ag- aggressive growth and a lot of work and, and, uh, I'm proud of it, but I have several more things that I would like to do on that front. A few more brick and mortar restaurants for sure. But, um, you know, again, you know, kind of transitioning into this other kind of phase of my career is kind of on my mind too. I've always kind of taken a longer look at things, um, 
and uh, it'll be exciting to see how everything kind of progresses and moves forward. Well, Jim and I are thinking back to if we were only 44 and it was all <laughs> still in front of us. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and you, Jim, Build Health International, you said it's in five countries. What's the what's the trajectory of its future look like? Well, I, I, I like to tell people there that I'm not trying to recreate the shaman experience with, you know, going from, you know, uh, one to a thousand people pretty quickly. Um, but uh, we're trying to figure out how to have more of an impact um, than, than just doing, you know, we're doing architecture, engineering, and construction. And um, we're trying, it's a drop in the bucket um, and we can only do so much. So we've learned so much in the last almost nine years working in Haiti and how to build very sustainable, low-tech uh, facilities, healthcare facilities that can deliver uh, quality, dignified care um, affordably. Um, it's sort of like when I started doing restaurants for for people like the Hammersleys. They had very limited budgets, and uh, we had to make it work. Uh, it was good training for this. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're just trying to figure out right now how to have more, how to leverage ourselves and what we've learned more, whether it's through um, publishing. Um, information and, and plans and, and documenting some of the things we do differently. And it really is, if you go to the website, uh, you see this work can be the difference between life and death. It really makes a profound difference. So I hope um, our listeners will go to Build Health International yeah. and find ways to get involved. Jim and Sarah, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks. It was, it was great. Uh, and Michael Scalfo, um, I hope everybody gets to know you better first by going to Alden and Harlow and then to Waypoint and then to Longfellow, but also your philanthropy, your commitment to the community, your passion for ending childhood hunger. We're really honored that you're an advocate and a champion for us. So thank you for being with us. Thank you, Billy. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. I really appreciate it. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.